0: Hello and welcome to Slate's Audiobook Club, a monthly bit of book chat where today we're talking about Hilary Mantle's Wolf Hall, a widely acclaimed and Booker Prize-winning novel. When I say we, I include Jacob Weisberg, the chairman of the Slate Group. Hi, Jacob. Hi, Troy. And we have here John Swansburg, Slate's culture editor. Great to be here. That makes me Troy Patterson. I write about television and such for this magazine. But right now, I'm also going to read you an ad. uh, And that is an ad for Audible.com, our beloved sponsor, which offers more than 50,000 downloadable audiobooks. If you sign up for a a one-book-a-month subscription to Audible through our URL, you'll get a credit good for one free book, yours to keep, even if you cancel your subscription. Uh, The address there is www.audiblepodcast.com slash slate. And I'm sure that there's no doubt that you can pick up a wolf hall
1: there and it's it's very good i don't know the name of the reader but uh i read it sort of toggling between the printed text and and listening to the audible version as i want to do recently with a lot of books and uh, it's a good way to do it
0: and how did uh, that experience uh,
1: affect your understanding of wolf hall here i think it helped for some reason it helps partly because the uh, the audible the reading aloud slows you down and I don't mean to jump the gun a little bit, but this is sort of a hard book in a lot of ways to get oriented in, and just slowing down helps a lot when you're trying to get a grip on the five-page cast of characters. Right. Right.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. So what we have here, Wolf Hall, is about Henry the Eighth and uh, one or two of his six wives, um, <laughs> uh, and. Um, we're spending time primarily—the protagonist is Thomas Cromwell, the first Earl of Essex, and Henry's chief minister in the 1530s. So as such, this is a fiction that follows uh, in the tradition of uh, Shakespeare's Henry VIII and Robert Bolt's Man for All Seasons and Richard Burton's Anne of a Thousand Days and Showtime's The Tudors. And so, John, <laughs> where do you, uh, how do you think this book fits into that tradition?
2: Well, the most obvious thing, a uh, uh, difference, I think, is just the way that it obviously is the way it treats uh, Thomas Cromwell. Cromwell is very much the hero of this book, uh, and traditionally he's, he's been quite the opposite. He's been, he's been portrayed as a villain. I'm not up on Showtime, but I know uh, in A Man for All Seasons, uh, he uh, he is very much uh, a nemesis of Thomas More and uh, is portrayed as quite a, a bad guy to spend time with. Whereas here, he's quite an amazing hero. He, I, I personally fell in love with him reading this book or reading this version of him, which is I don't know this history all that well, but in just doing some of the reading doing some reading around the book, it sounds like Mantle has sort of reinvented him somewhat ahistorically, but he's he's really uh, a character you want to spend time
1: with and and uh he's he's quite he's quite great. I don't know if you guys also felt that way, but well I, I was sort of thinking of Cromwell as as Henry Eighth, Rama manual. Yeah and uh if you I, I guess I don't know this history very well, but generally Cromwell is this very Machiavellian henchman to Henry VIII who was sort of the procurer of his wives. And um, you know, fairly cutthroat character. But in in Hilary Mantle's version, to the extent he is a cutthroat character and she, you know, clearly soft pedals that a lot, yeah. making more the bad guy. But he's doing it in the service of a larger cause, which is surprisingly both sort of Britain's independence and you know modernization, but also this kind of humanism. Mm-hmm. You know, he identifies with the heretics to some extent. He thinks they should be free to read the Bible in English. He doesn't like the totalitarianism of Thomas More's English Catholicism and he sort of she 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 hints at him doing bad stuff including killing someone in the mysteries of the past right. but for a good reason <laughs>
0: right mm-hmm. so both of you are inclined to view him unambiguously as a hero then
2: as as he's portrayed here yeah i think so almost, i mean almost to the point where I feel like if the book has a flaw, it's that he's he's too easy to like. I mean, he loves little dogs. He you know he takes in orphans. Um, he uh, even when he's acting at his most Machiavellian, he, you know, it's you have this sense that he's doing it for a larger purpose. Um, as as Jake mentioned, I don't know in the end if that if, if it's if it's too much, but I, I felt like if there if there was a a problem with the book, it was a, it, I wasn't challenged enough in, into thinking that oh well maybe what he's doing isn't something I should admire.
1: Well, the, the real contrast is with Thomas More, you know, and this is great opposition between them. Uh, when when uh, when I finished the book, I, I went immediately into John's office, which is next to mine. I read it over the Christmas holidays and was enthusing about it. But amazingly, these two famous portraits by Hans Holbein of Thomas More and Thomas Cromwell are in New York City at the Frick Gallery. I think it's amazing that these paintings are in New York. It would be like if, you know, the sort of uh, Gilbert Stuart portraits of George Washington were in the National Gallery in London. Well, maybe there is one in the National Gallery of London. He did a lot of one, but there was only one copy of each of them. But there's this great historical opposition, and and, uh, Robert Bolt's play, A Man for All Seasons, which you referred to at the beginning, is the kind of classic the the um, kind of cliche portrayal of Moore as this hero of conscience and standing up to henry the because he didn't think what he was doing was right and you know getting uh getting executed in favor of his beliefs and cromwell is the classic villain in that and this novel totally reverses that to an extent that is you know Wonderful and surprising but probably a little implausible the negative portrayal of Moore is not implausible right. the idea that he's if, if uh, Cromwell's the, the Rahm Emanuel Moore is the Dick Cheney you know <laughs> he he's tortures people he you know he thinks that nothing is too bad for the enemies of of the true true religion of Catholic theology, and he has women burned at the stake and enjoys it, has prisoners in his house. I think that 's all that all rang very true what didn 't ring true is to me a little bit although i 'm not sure it 's a flaw in the novel, but just if i if you asked me to guess where does this novel depart from the truth, the idea that Cromwell wouldn 't do any of those things that he was that he did have this Humanistic side, and that he was repelled by Moore's methods, as opposed to probably just being a political enemy. Mm -hmm. I don't. Well, I found it. I
0: suppose I'll I'll go ahead and agree with you that he is the hero here. But there's a sense in uh, that in rooting for him, it's kind of like rooting for Michael Corleone in The Godfather, (laughs) right? And it's uh, one thing that uh, uh, the novelist does with great skill is um, sort of. Uh, encouraging your sympathy for this figure it helps it's a bit of a cheat maybe that uh the first chapter is um this um we're witnessing this brutal be this brutal beating that his father a uh his father a blacksmith in putney is delivering to him as a youth and so that's the that sort of encourages some sympathy before we leap ahead and get um we get his career going and it sort of like s- slowly emerges that you know that this figure who might be kind of like a paper pusher or a middle manager, first as Cardinal Wolsey's right hand, there's this creeping sense of his uh, the pleasure he takes in sort of the exercise of power in itself. And there's a kind of s- sort of like steady peeling away of um, how to put it it's sort of peeling away a gradual revelation of his nature, uh, kind of. His Nature as a political animal, mm-hmm. um, and I would point out um, there, there are an awful lot of snakes in this book, both both literally and um, uh, sort of used as metaphors
2: yeah there's lots of bags of snakes yeah someone has a great line about how getting married is a bad idea because it 's like reaching into a bag where there are you know six snakes and one eel and you 're trying to grab the eel <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> so that was a nice metaphor
1: yeah the, well, that 's a good question Troy. i mean i I, I found him a very sympathetic as well as a compelling character. But the question is, you know, you know he's, he is pursuing power. He's amassing wealth and power himself. So why are you rooting for him? As with Michael Corleone or a lot of characters who do bad things, I think part of what you admire about them is their skill. And he is this man of parts who has this tremendous range of skills. There's one passage in the book which I will not find right now. But it, it's this, it says he knew how to train a falcon to to break up a fight, to, yeah, I to, what it says to rig a jury, and there are several other things, but he's had this he's this incredible worldly figure who's lived in Antwerp, lived in Florence, knows how the world works in a way that's really beyond the understanding that his contemporaries in Britain have, and when he says he knows how to fix a jury. You know, that's not intrinsically a good thing, although if he's fixing a jury to, you know, help heretics escape— execution, maybe it is. But you just admire his kind of uh, universal skillfulness. He's a sort of Odysseus-like figure, and he kind of, he knows where the levers are and how to pull the strings. Right.
2: And there's another, there's another sort of metaphor that runs through the book. Uh, I think it's actually the title of one of the chapters called Arrange Your Face. Um, And one of the things that, you know, he has this, um, he keeps saying to himself uh, throughout the book, you know, he's talking about arranging his face given what the situation is, knowing sort of who his interlocutor is, knowing the situation, knowing whether to be an enforcer, knowing whether to win sort of more bees with honey, um, and sort of taking all those skills that, that you mentioned, and, and uh, it is, it just there's a there's a, a element of fun in watching him approach these very disparate situations and always kind of coming out on top. Whether it's whether he's dealing with Catherine, the Henry's first wife, trying to. Um, You know, make her come around to the king's position, or whether he's dealing with the Duke of Norfolk, a kind of blustery uh, nobleman who who sort of looks down his nose at uh, at Thomas Cromwell, in part because he's the son of a a poor son of of a blacksmith. It doesn't matter what the situation is; he knows how to to, how to handle it, and. that's you know that's part of the pleasure i think it's you know the end that he's that he's seeking in all those cases is not always one that you necessarily think is a good one but there is there is real pleasure in watching him sort of arrange his face for the for the occasion and and sort of carry the day yeah yeah
0: two two points I would make about what jacob was saying before and uh about cromwell's attractions uh about his being a man of with a vast array of skills for one thing that uh sort of array of talents and his uh sort of He's a little bit too dry and even-tempered to call it a lust for power, but fixation on it has to do with his sort of class background, right? a uh, uh, constant theme in the book as well. It should be with all these people who are born to the merchant class or the aristocrats sort of sneering at this sort of gutter-born sort of self-made person. And m- meaningfully, like one of the rumors that goes around uh, court about him is that his father is a butcher rather than a blacksmith. blacksmith right, right. Um, so that's a, that's a good mistake, and then there's also you know about his there's something of a sort of the dark magician to to a man who can um, and sort of be both as sort of wily and conniving as Cromwell was and in this complicated way. I think one of the re- ways the book gets its juice is. Um, It's sort of half sunk in, like, myth, and there's sort of, like, this fog of mystery and magic hanging on it. I guess one early chapter is called, like, An Occult History of Britain. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that there are just, like, little atmospheric ways that she gives the sense that, you know, these are people who, you know, think about hell and demons and, you know, sort of spirits in a way that's much more palpable Uh, if that makes any
1: sense, yeah. I mean, Cromwell cultivates an air of mystery about himself. You know, he likes people to know sort of that he killed somebody in Italy, and you know, but he doesn't. He doesn't clear anything up. Um, and also, the way the story is told, very interesting. It's narrated in the present tense, and you're inside Cromwell's head, but he is seldom referred to by his name. He's usually referred to by a third person pronoun as he. So it's a little bit disorienting, and that also kind of creates this kind of feeling of mystery and not really knowing where you are in relation to him. And um, another sort of curiosity is that um, the language used to narrate the story is not archaic. You know, there's no kind of Shakespearean verbiage. There isn't quotations from the characters, but the author uses this sort of fairly contemporary diction – to tell the story. So you're you're a little bit you know, it's not it's not historicized in this way that's supposed to be totally authentic.
2: Right, Mantel um, seems it's interesting. She doesn't really tell us anything about his backstory either. I mean, in some we get, as Troy mentioned, that sort of very vivid opening vignette where he's getting kicked around and kicked in the face by his father, and we get a little bit of snippets of him kind of proceeding um, from his kind of gutter upbringing to Europe. But then Europe is kind of a blank blank page. We there are allusions to he fought for the French uh, as sort of I guess a mercenary. Um, He was you know he's a banker in um, Italy and Antwerp, but we don't really know. Any, like what happened there? So we're sort of left to kind of you know wonder as well. Whereas we're, you know, that sort of contrasts with the great detail that we're where uh, we witness these the sort of great historic events. And, you know that are, are part of what the book is covering. You know we're we're in the bedroom with Anne Boleyn when you know she's uh, with child. We're you know we're, we're privy to uh, you know the ki- what the kings the kings decides when he's you know taking archery lessons. You know we're, we're right there, and that's one of the great pleasures of the book as well. Um, but you know it does make st- make it stand out that we don't really we we're sort of left to mythologize
1: Cromwell's past a little bit as well. These great little glimpses of description. I think at one point uh, he describes Henry VIII with these ruby rings on his fingers as having bubbles of blood. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know? and, there's, and I think another reason, sort of getting back to Troy's question, why you admire this character and identify with him, is he's an early Renaissance man at the end of the Middle Ages. So, you know, the England where he shows up is this very medieval place you know the, the, the monasteries are still there people are eating the wormy bread you know it's just this kind of you know vision of kind of very primitive unmodern society and because he's this worldly character and has been to these places like Antwerp and Florence where the Renaissance has already gotten underway and is in touch with what's happening in ideas and art and food and you know Hans Holbein is his friend right. and these great little other bits you know how um, Hans Holbein is staying at his house and he's complaining about how he's got to finish this painting of the French ambassador. And, of course, that's Holbein's most famous picture, The right. Ambassadors, you know, which is in the, I think it's in the, in the National Gallery. But, the, you know, you sort of he's, – he's not a man out of time. I mean this is the real transition that happened and the things that Cromwell helped facilitate were essential to it. Right. He's, he's not a man out of time, but he's sort of a man out of
2: time in, in Britain a little bit, or in England. He, he, he's, he's been exposed to those ideas, but a lot of his contemporaries in England haven't. Um, and so again, w- when you're sort of sitting back and thinking about whether why you, why you root for him, I think part of the reason is you understand that he has sort of more enlightened ideas about uh, a lot of these things. And he's, he's one of his – he wants to grab power, but he, I think he also wants to make England a power. He wants it to be able to compete uh, on, the, on a global stage in a way that it hasn't. He has a, a line at one point – I think he thinks that we'll – Wolseley started that process. You know, he, I think he says at some point, you know, before Woolsley, England was just a, a cold island, you know, off the coast that didn't have any power and was really backwards. And I think he sees his mission not just to grab power for himself, but also to to um, to make England a, a more a more modern place. Uh, and one and one of the interesting ideas that I think he brings um, as well, and from his experience uh, in Italy, is the idea of the importance of money and. Um, you know, the, the, a lot of the people that he, that he encounters at, in King Henry's court are obsessed with nobility and lineage and he sort of understands that the way the world is going to work in the future has to do with who, has, who controls the, the money uh, and a lot of that control is in, uh, is in Europe it's not, it's not in England and the, the king's ability to wage war uh, the nobility's ability to sort of stay uh, in their seats all has to do with who has the debts, who can call in the chits and his connections to the continent you know, is, that's part of his power
1: Um, And the and the English nobility is is shown to be really backward because they don't understand any of this. They think power is still based on family and title and royal estates and, you know, royal patents and all of that kind of thing. And they're sort of, you know, they're kind of trading in the wrong currency.
2: Right. There's a great scene um, uh, sort of toward the end of the book where Harry Percy, who's, uh, I think, the lord of Northumberland, he's, uh, you know, a noble whose uh, job it is to kind of keep the Scots at bay in the north of England... He thinks that as a youth, Anne Boleyn has pledged him, herself to him and that they had had some sort of clandestine marriage that would, of course, mess up uh, Henry VIII's plans to, to marry Anne. And at one point he starts making noise about how, oh, you know, Anne and I had this, you know, the secret compact. And there's a great scene where uh, Cromwell just sort of sits him down and says, you cannot do this. And uh, Harry Percy's first response is, "Who are you? You're some son of a blacksmith. You can't tell me what to do. I'm a, I'm a lord." And he says, "Look, you, you may be a lord, but I hold the purse strings. I can bankrupt you tomorrow. I can get all the people you owe money to to say pay them back immediately. I have the king's ear. Uh, as a result, and you have to do what I say." And it's just great to kind of shift in the in the balance of power that this blacksmith's son. It's not just because he has Henry's ear; it's because you know he he sort of knows the way the world works now, and he can tell these old entitled. Uh, nobles what to do.
0: Yeah. You know, the fact that these intrigues are the sort of this power of the book, it makes me wonder if uh, I, I can see this catching on with, like, Hollywood agents and hip-hop <laughs> crews, like, you know, the way that uh, the art of war would.
1: Right. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I also want to say I've been sitting here, like, flipping through, like, trying to do three things at once, flipping through this 530-page book to um, find some succinct examples of how funny this guy is. Part of his appeal is is to rape your wit, and it's another indication of um what Hillary Mantel's doing really superbly here. What I don't know if she's doing superbly, somehow this book is very engaging, I find, with but kind of sort of slow going. In miniature there's a lot of great stuff to to absorb, but there's not it doesn't really flow. And I think it's partly of necessity, um, that, It's got to be more sort of outlined than plotted, right? Sort of, you know, tellingly, a lot of chapters begin by just situating us in terms of date. So we feel like we're, in my experience of reading, you're just kind of ticking along down the road as opposed to sort of feeling forces come into conflict. You're um, sort of, how to put it? It's you're, slow you're watching read. the conflict
1: unfold rather
0: than yeah. build. Yeah, yeah It's I mean, a it slow he-
1: read for kind of I, – I was sort of wondering that because it's not usual that a book that's sort of hard to read is as enjoyable and immersive as this is. And I'm not sure. I think it, partly she was intentionally disorienting you, you know, with, with some of the devices I, I was um, describing earlier where she refers to him, you know, in the third person. And, you know, it's, it's, it's meant to be some work for the author. And it's work that you have to keep kind of going back to the cast of characters at the beginning and the genealogical chart. And, you know, people have the same names. Everyone's called Thomas. Right. Thomas you have, or Henry. You have all yeah, all Thomas or Henry. And you have to kind of keep going back and figuring out out who people are and in a lesser book i think that would be more annoying but somehow i I felt the the you know the 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 this was sort of so well told that in a way you kind of you were you were willing to do the work and you didn't mind doing the work yeah i agree with that i kept
2: wondering what um what the experience would be to to read this as if i'd grown up as an englishman Um, Mm -hmm. you know where where the history was just sort of more part of of uh, you know my upbringing and my uh, my schooling um, that might have helped a little bit with the vast cast of characters and all the and all the Thomases but I still think even <laughs> so it would have been it would have been a little tricky and I definitely noticed the same thing you did Troy that it felt like some uh, some of the chapters or some of the sections within the chapters they opened with these sort of you know it sort of felt like a date line it's you know fi- you know fifteen twenty seven in Putney um, and it almost gave this feeling of like a, she had that Hilary Mantel had mapped out a, a, t- a timeline in some cases just started you know where I, you know, this is the place where I know that we want to advance the plot. I want to focus in, uh, and sort of gone from the, gone from there. And there were some there were some parts of the story that I found more engaging than others. I mean, whenever um, the plot turned to uh, Henry's court, I, I was really engaged. Um, his repartee with uh, Cromwell's repartee with the king, and also with Anne, I, I felt they were both very worthy sparring partners. And, and both Anne and the king are, are fully realized characters and very interesting characters at that. Um, and Mary so Mary Boland's a lot of fun too. Mary Boland is fantastic. <laughs> yeah um uh and and she uh, her her relationship with Cromwell is, is really great they're sort of almost uh having an affair on was more than one occasion she
1: sort of propositions
2: him she propositions I mean, him in Calais once right and then yeah. and then I was thinking up one other point and then and at one point she's sort of proposed as uh as a maybe a match for uh Cromwell's son or his, I guess it's technically his nephew Richard but yeah, she's like this very. She's very racy, and um, she kind of is a great character. When she comes in, you kind of always get the straight talk about what's really happening uh, in the sort of Berlin circle, and she can be she can be somewhat body.
0: Um, she she he, kind of reminds me of one of the. Uh, she's
1: like a third Sternwood daughter from The Big Sleep. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. The um, he has a, he has a lot of respect for women. Mm-hmm. You know, he he educates his daughter. He's kind of the figure he most loves is his daughter who dies in the plague, which is a very kind of sad and moving part of the book. But he's teaching his daughter Greek, and he's very proud of how how good she is at it, and he's educating her the way people didn't usually educate Girls, and then one other person who does, interestingly, is is Thomas More, who he's sort of competitive with, but More likes these docile, dull women for his wives, and and married, is married to married one, she dies, he marries another one, you know. Again, Cromwell has this wife who's kind of an intellectual equal, mm-hmm. who also. Well, not to give too much away, but I figure it's a historical novel, right? So <laughs> yeah. You're not You're, you're not supposed to lives. not know, but anyway, yeah. plague's not so good to her either. <laughs> uh. And also actually there's one um
2: there's one moment that is I thought I found very powerful. Uh although it, it kind of an interesting moment. I wonder what you guys make of it, but there's this um one flashback that he has uh is to the um the killing of a, uh, a heretic I guess she's technically called a lawler she, I think she denies the uh, transubstantiation um, and he sort of wanders away from uh, home when he's a young boy uh, I think he's sort of afraid his dad's going to beat him up which uh, he's, he's wise to be afraid um, and he sort of witnesses the, the um, sort of brutal uh, killing by um, uh, by burning of this, of this heretic um,
1: It's an intense scene It's a very intense he scene saw it when He was a boy so you see it through this kind of his remembers. A child thought Wait, can right. you find
2: it? do you want to read it? Uh, yeah, let me see if I can find it. Uh, so this is on this is on page um, two ninety uh, and as as we've uh, said, um, this is the young uh, Thomas Cromwell. he's wandered from home and he comes across this uh, woman who's about to be burned, and uh, this is mantle. The stake was on top of a pile of stones, and some gentlemen came, and priests, bishops perhaps, he did not know. They called out to the lawler to put off her heresies. He was close enough to see her lips moving, but he could not hear what she said. What if she changes her mind now? Will they let her go? Not they, the woman chuckled. Look, she is calling on Satan to help her. The gentlemen withdrew. The officers banked up wood and bales of straw around the lawler. The woman tapped her on the shoulder. Let's hope it's damp, eh? This is a good view. Last time I was at the back. The rain had stopped. The sun broke through. When the executioner came with a torch, it was, it was pale in the sunshine, barely more than a slick movement, like the movement of eels in a bag. The monks were chanting and holding up a cross to the lawler, and it was only when they skipped backward at the first billow of smoke that the crowd knew the fire was set. Uh, it Goes on from there to describe in some details uh, the death of this woman, uh, which is which is pretty awful and uh, it, it struck me that as interesting that this was a, a you know a woman that he saw uh, burned at the stake. It seemed like a, a not accidental uh, choice, and I thought this was an interesting scene because it, it kind of gives some backstory to uh, cromwell 's um, ambivalent uh, at best uh, understanding or, or feelings towards religion It was something we touched on. Earlier, that he, 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 he seems throughout the book to, to um, dislike people of t- uh, too great religious fervor, people who are unwilling to make any compromise because of their feelings. I mean, that's one of the things that comes up with Moore and also with um, Tyndall, who's a, an exile and a translator of the Bible. Um, he has a line at one point about how um, he can't understand these religious men who aren't willing to make some small sacrifice in their belief to advance a cause. Right. Um, and that's obviously his, his modus operandi is he's, his beliefs are malleable to suit the occasion and uh, these and I think in one, in some way he he admires this woman for for not uh changing her belief but he sees uh you know the result of of what happens and he also sees the result of the you know these obviously these uh fanatical uh religious uh, people who are who are willing to to commit this kind of awful uh, crime against this woman
1: i mean this incredible cruelty and Public bloodlust and sadism, and also masochism. In the case of Thomas More, who wears a hair shirt, is sort of the you know is the backdrop to this whole story. And um, you know, the title of the book is Wolf Hall, which refers specifically to the place where Jane Seymour. Family lives. It doesn't figure that much in the book. It's, it's sort of, it becomes important, I think, in the period after this, because Jane Seymour is uh, Henry VIII's next wife, right. takes place off stage. But, you know, there's the, um, there's the famous Latin expression. Which uh, uh, homo homini lupus yes, yes, very good, um, which translates man as a wolf to his fellow man. I was just sort of thinking and that popped to my head as reading that because on every page there 's you know this just horrific religiously based violence, um, and I think in the in the sort of final final analysis, Cromwell is a hero because he represents less of that and a move away from that
2: right there's a great there 's a great scene where um I think it's the first time that Cromwell goes to meet Moore, um, and he's he's. Uh, I think I think it's Woolsey who's told him uh, that he should you know you should always wonder about what people wear under their clothes, and he's thinking about Thomas Moore's hair shirt, and uh, and sort of clothes are, are kind of a great theme in this book. Um, because one of his uh, experiences in Europe is is kind of like getting to know different fabrics, and he's always sort of touching. Cromwell's always touching fabrics to find uh, find out sort of their their quality and and worth, uh, and he finds himself kind of musing about what. How that hair shirt gets made, you know, is it made by by monks who sort of are thinking to themselves, you know, how best can I craft a shirt to create these sores that are going to weep uh, and make someone, you know, uh, feel awful, or is there, or is it done by someone who doesn't quite realize what the purpose of the of the shirt is? And, and the, just, I, I kind of love that he uh, sort of muses on on things like yeah. that.
0: Well, actually, let me read that um, that hair shirt paragraph, which is on uh, it's on page seventy two. I put a big check mark by it uh, and made a note that it kind of sounded a little bit like Elizabeth Bishop to me in a way. <laughs> Um So here we are Uh under his clothes, it is well known, Moore wears a jerkin of horsehair. He beats himself with a small scourge of the type used by some religious orders. What it lodges in his mind, Thomas Cromwell's, is that somebody makes these instruments of daily torture. Someone combs the horsehair into torse, into coarse tufts, knots them, and chops the blunt ends, knowing that their purpose is to snap off under the skin and irritate it into weeping sores. Is it monks who make them, nodding and snipping in a fury of righteousness, chuckling at the thought of the pain they will cause to persons unknown? Are simple paid how by the dozen for the, for making flails with wax knots does it keep farm workers busy during the slow winter months when the money for their honest labor is put into their hands do the makers think of the hands that will pick up the product which is really just lovely it's got a nice rhythm and it also points toward um, uh, another thing that uh, makes the book very likable is that it's a historical novel but not um uh, it avoids the pitfalls of being like a costume drama um you know the there are, I thought you liked the tutors um well that's yeah. that's you know pulp has its own place but this uh novel qualifies as I mean, it's it's too
1: dry to be um to satisfy as pulp well that's a really interesting point i was thinking about that troy is, you know what makes a good historical novel? I mean, first of all, do you like historical novels? Do you, either of you? Are they? Is that a sort of category that you kind of go out of your way either to read or to avoid reading? I don't think I've gone out of my way to avoid
2: reading them, but I haven't read that many. I mean, I think War and Peace might be the last historical novel I read, and that was that was some time ago. So this was, this you know, uh, reading a book of this quality um, made me think, well, maybe I should I should read more of them um, because I, I really did. I, I think not many are executed as well as this, but. I don't know yeah I think
0: i think it would be really short sighted to dismiss historical novels out of hand, just sort of books about historical personages from the past but the the sad fact is that so many of them or at least so many of the ones that I've attempted to read you know always have people sort of reaching for their teacup or sort of making a big deal out of i don't know oiling the saddle or whatever uh and you know this is. I, again, I think something that's great about how this book works, but also sort of accounts for its um, irregularity of pace, is that, that this. And I think that this comes through in the, uh, the paragraph, the passages that John and I both read. Is that the attention to detail is both sort of specific, but she's tending to focus on details that are sort of out of time in a way. We, we're not, we don't get bogged down in the sort of cut of Petticoats,
2: right? She doesn't fetishize the, the detail, and she doesn't. It doesn't. You never get the sense that she's sort of showing off her research, right? It all seems to be pertinent to what's going on, to sort of to making you feel like you're there and making you understand what the um, characters are feeling. And also, she you know she has a real knack for symbolism, and a lot of the um, a lot of the detail is, I think, chosen with an eye towards what it means and how it's going to recur throughout the throughout the novel.
0: Yeah, exactly. There'll be sort of. Uh, a two-page passage that could be, you know, in its physical details, and it could be happening anywhere at any time. And then maybe it'll build to, a sort of, a short flight of fancy and sort of figurative speech that, uh, with a couple nice little gems of observation.
2: Right. Like one example um, that pops to mind is Cardinal Wolsey when he falls when eventually he's unable to get Henry what he wants, i.e., a, a divorce from Catherine. Um, so. Uh, Wolseley is uh, relieved of his uh, command as as Lord Chancellor, and one of the things that uh, he has to give back is his uh, robe, his sort of cardinal colored uh, robe that he uh, usually wears uh, in that capacity. And again, um, Cromwell is sort of obsessed with these the with garments. cloth, yeah. yeah. And he, you know, he says, you know, at that point in history, you know, he wouldn't throw that away. Uh, it was, you know, but it, it, I guess no one else was going to wear it. But he says you know that's going to be cut up, and and uh, you may you know may see a little flash. Of that, and the petticoat of a prostitute, or the sort of inside sleeve of a gentleman, and he kind of just goes on this kind of muse, muse to muse about you know where that fabric will end up. And it's a really it's a kind of interesting fact that you know that they, obviously you wouldn't you would recycle uh, cloth of that quality in 1530, but also it has sort of you know relatively obvious metaphorical Great metaphor meaning to
1: what was happening in the Catholic Church and the, you know it being broken up and the you know the monasteries being sold off, the money being used exactly, used right. but and yet, also
0: and also kind of a sly way. At, It's like a throwaway line that gives the novel some sweep without, you know, in an effortless seeming way.
1: It's a fantastic image. You know, this beautiful pink cloth, which he describes at length as an incredibly expensive cloth. And then, you know, here's how it's going to sort of end up being used. But, I mean, I thought, you know, as a historical novel, I thought it was really interesting because – it doesn't come out of the genre of historical fiction. I mean, the kind of, you know, the the fairly hackish, you know, James Michener, or Irving Stone. I don't know if you guys read any of those books growing up. I quite liked them when I was a you know, teenager. But, yeah, I read a little but, Michener. It's totally, you know, totally absorbing, <laughs> huge historical narrative with big characters. And it smelled like this. And, you know, um, this kind of is... is totally different from that in, in a number of ways that work in its favor one she doesn't seem principally concerned with the big historical events I mean th- there's this big historical event at the heart of this which is England's break with the Catholic Church and Henry VIII's um, divorce from his first wife but you know the, the, the kind of the great moments are not all there it's mostly the action off stage um, but but Two other dimensions I think are really important. One is the sort of literary approach to the subject, you know, that she kind of is so concerned with sort of voice and perspective and character. But the other, and I think this is the thing that, that really makes this novel so brilliant, is working around the known historical facts – You know, a historical novel stops working if there's something that you know is actually impossible or didn't happen. You have these kind of obstacles, like slalom skiing. You've got to get around what you know. But then to, within that, come up with a theory of of the history and the characters that turns what's sort of accepted on its head and get away with it is just sort of a coup. You know, because, I mean, to sort of... I don't know enough about the history to know where she's pushing it, but based on a few reviews I read of the book and so on, I think she's – the historian well, maybe that's not the way it was, but there's nothing obviously wrong with it, you know, and sort of to use what we know and make you think about it in a what-if differently. What if everything we assume about this period is wrong and it really was very different? That's really kind of a, a great a great concept to animate a book like this.
0: All right, then. So then the uh, the question then, John, is how does uh, what did you make of the uh, Henry VIII of this book? Is he
2: like the man with the big mutton chop? Is he the Jonathan Reese Myers you were? <laughs> I really uh, I really admired the the portrait of, of this Henry. He's a he's a complicated character, and I imagine it's a somewhat difficult one to. Um, to paint uh you know sometimes he is the sort of caricature that i i had imagined kind of petulant childish king who sort of you know wants his way and wants someone to sort of make his way happen for him um but uh at other moments uh Mantel sort of stops to make you um sort of admire uh him and sort of think about him in a different way and sort of get a sense of uh how smart he was and, and how cagey i mean I, my understanding from reading up on the history a little bit is that you know his his older brother arthur was uh was going to be king arthur uh died and so henry was sort of, was trained to go into the clergy and was was a very- you know was given a lot of schooling and spoke a lot of languages and Cromwell throughout the book um at different moments pauses to say how much he actually admires uh Henry even though he can be mercurial as or as kings are wont to be um and um, there are a couple of scenes w- between um, Cromwell's family and the king that I thought were really almost kind of poignant where uh, Henry brings uh, Cromwell in and Cromwell brings his t- his two sons and um, Henry compliments them in this, in this really um, kind of magnanimous way. And, and it brightens the spirits of the, of the Cromwell children. And there's a certain magnanimity of spirit about Henry, despite the fact that he's, you know, goes about lopping off the heads of, of wives who don't produce issue,
1: uh, male issue for him. Uh, yeah.
2: He's not, he's not just like a, a a, a two-dimensional caricature.
1: She she goes beyond the cape on leg waving, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. bling <laughs> encrusted cliche. Um, he uh, well, part of it is Henry doesn't cut off that many people's heads in this book. We know right. he did later, but at the end of this book, he hasn't cut off any wives' heads, including his first wife. And in fact, and I didn't, you know, I didn't not not being having grown up in England, I didn't. I don't know this story as well as all English school children learn it, but he spent a really long time trying to make a deal with Catherine of Aragon his first wife and work this out you know he he ends up d- deposing cardinal Wolsey because Wolsey in this impossible situation can't get the roman church to agree to let him divorce C- catherine of aragon but he doesn't just do what he wants i mean he's aware of these you know sort of more than formalities he has to go through and he's he's not complicated in that he has the kind of intellectual sophistication that Cromwell does and you don't think my god this guy's a brilliant operator moving chess pieces but you do sympathize with him a little bit partly because the 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 uh, English nobility is such a terrifying place and there's all this plotting going on and there's the background of, you know, the War of the Roses and the, the, the whatever, the Lanky, the Castors and the Yorks. I always forget who's who. But, you know, everyone's sort of worried it's going to kind of slide back into this civil war. And he's kind of keeping it together in his way and trying to, you know, he's not just, he's not just being a petulant baby and getting his his every whim.
2: Right. And he's smart enough to recognize how he- useful Cromwell is, right. and, and smart enough to recognize that he, that Cromwell will, uh, could be of great use to him, even though, you know, Wolsey goes down, essentially, for failing to um, dissolve the marriage with Catherine, and you could imagine a world in, in which Cromwell would have gone down with Wolsey because he was Wolsey's right-hand man, but but Henry is sort of savvy enough to say, just sort of recognize this is someone who can can help me. And I think going back to one of the themes we talked about earlier about sort of the nobility versus um, Cromwell, who doesn't have any station, I think Henry is savvy enough to realize that someone with Cromwell's skills and none of Cromwell's attachments is especially useful in the sense that if you have a, you know, a Machiavellian opera- operator who's also the Duke of Norfolk and is, you know, therefore has all these allegiances to, uh, you know, to other people in the in the nobility, that's more of a threat to you than some blacksmith's son um, who can who can make things happen, but is obviously never going to be king. That's a very good point.
0: I'm absolutely serious that uh, Hilary Mantel should follow this book with you know a kind of a sort of a 36 laws of power like <laughs> derived from from Thomas Cromwell but in the absence of such a book we're also to understand that a um a sequel to this one is maybe on the way is
2: i, I read in the guardian way? that it is that she that when she won the booker prize i think she said around that time that she's She's sort of knee deep in a sequel,
1: okay, I gotta tell you I don't think it's gonna have a happy ending
2: <laughs> well it's when when this book ends uh Anne
0: Boleyn's head is still attached to the rest of her um though and, thomas More's is not <laughs> right uh and so then Jane Seymour enters the picture who um you know in rereading this book I was like, learning stuff that I'd already forgotten twice. <laughs> uh, and then, <laughs> yes, so between that this... That is the feeling you have. <laughs> between reading, this right. jogging my memory and and uh, <laughs> looking in, in history books, I was refreshed that, uh, yeah, so Anne Boleyn's head comes off, and then in May of 1536, Jane Seymour enters the picture and delivers a son and dies in childbirth. Um, and then things start going downhill for Thomas Cromwell after that, I guess, he... Sort of uh, pushes the um, for political reasons. He pushes Henry into this marriage with Anne of Cleves,
2: right? Uh, and and he his downfall is is quite swift, which is interesting. It makes you wonder how, kind of how you would handle that dramatically, as I as I understand it. Cromwell is, you know, maintains the high station that we see him achieve in this book for, for a few more years, and then you know, he's elevated. I think to was it the Earl of Essex? Is that what you mentioned at the top yeah. of the show? Um, and then three months later. Uh, he's arrested and I think uh, and, and uh, killed shortly thereafter. Right. So and there are a couple of, of interesting allusions to that in this book, but the, you really have to kind of look for them. I think I only noticed them in going through the book a second time, where Wolseley warns um, Cromwell that uh, you know sort of you'll never see it coming. That you'll you know uh, he'll look up one day and Henry will be barreling down at you, sort of with his joust uh, pointed at your head, and you won't, <laughs> you won't have time to saddle up before he hits you. Which is in, in fact I think you know what happens well, to Cromwell. It yeah, reminds me he,
1: of the wire. But well, no, it's like <laughs>
2: yeah. it's
0: like Goodfellas when <laughs> when Joe Pesci gets made, they're telling him he's going to get made, and they kill him. This is really what happened historically to Thomas Cromwell. Right? He, upon getting his earldom, he was sort of suspicious that, <laughs> that he'd gotten a little too high and mighty, and yeah. that's when you start looking over your shoulder.
2: Right. But it's, it's it has an interesting effect on on this book because. Uh, you know, it's an interesting decision on Mantle's part to just pick this sort of eight year period that is the focus of this book. It's just the rise of Cromwell that, you know, the the hints of what's to come for him are really around the edges. And, they you know, there isn't some real sense of foreboding I, or I didn't sense one in reading this, um, that this that this man is is sort of headed for. A comeuppance. Um, you leave him in kind of a
1: good place. He's going yeah. to take his first vacation in a long time. <laughs> yeah, getting, exactly. But he's going off to Wolf Hall for his vacation, which right. is a little ominous. That is a, it is a little <laughs> ominous.
2: But it's interesting that she chose to sort of tell this this story and and uh, not darken it too much with. Um, Intimations of his of his fate, so I wonder what it'll be like to read this book in the future if there is a sequel, knowing that this a sort of a two-part, or who knows, maybe it would be a, a three-part eventually um, series, and the, you know, as opposed to just reading it as a single volume, and they're not existing, sort of the completion of the Cromwell story. <laughs> I could cheat and see the other Bowling girl, but I'm not going to.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, well, in the eventuality of such a sequel coming to press, perhaps you guys will join me back here for another spirited discussion. <laughs> that would be terrific. <laughs> Thank you for dropping by. Thank and you, Troy. For Slate's Outer Book Club, I'm Troy Patterson.